0: This has come to the table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash wy giving So we're in 1 Peter, chapter
1: two, Verse 21, for hereunto were ye called. Well, now that's referring to something before that. So let's actually go back a paragraph to verse 17. We're just going to read through this part, and then we're going to start digging in at chapter 3, verse 1. Honor all men. This is the first general epistle of Peter to Christians. Okay, in fact, he actually addresses it specifically to... The strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So the various believers that were in those regions, those cities, those countries, etc. So he says, honor all men, love the brethren, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. Now this isn't a wholesale endorsement of slavery, okay? The Bible does not condone slavery, it doesn't promote slavery, but it recognized that it was a very real fact of life especially in ancient times. So for those believers who were unfortunately slaves to other people, the apostle said, servants, be subject to your masters. Now, how does that how does that become relevant to us today in a in a in an officially slavery-free United States of America. Well, it's officially slavery-free. I know that slavery still goes on in dark corners and in unofficial capacities and all that. But how does that apply to us who are free? Well, you work for an employer probably, don't you? You have a boss. And so it translates quite nicely into that. Employees, be subject to your employers and not just to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. It, there's a, there is a difference that's there between a, you know, a servant or slave and an employee because the employee has freedom to leave. If they're in an oppressive or a dishonest working environment and they just need to get out of there for the sake of their sanity or they have a better opportunity somewhere else, then as a Christian, you've got that freedom. As an American citizen, you've got that freedom. You're good to go there. So please don't take this as being exactly parallel to indentured servitude or to slavery. But he does say, servants be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward, the headstrong, the unkind. And in verse 19, he tells us why. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience towards God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Now that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people because we as Americans, and I'm only being slightly ironic, we as Americans, we've got a pretty finely tuned sense of personal justice, don't we? When someone does you wrong and it feels like you've been done wrong, well, the natural response and the fleshly response, and I'm not saying it's even the wrong response, I'm just saying that it's the natural one, is to rise up against that injustice as one who has been done wrong, right? But the apostle tells us that it is thankworthy if a man for conscience towards God Endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Sometimes it's just the right thing to do, to endure the wrong thing. Does does that make sense what we're saying? And if there's any doubt about that teaching, okay, Peter clarifies it in the very next paragraph, beginning in verse 21. It, just to skip ahead here. He says, For hereunto, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us leaving an example that you should follow in his steps who did no sin neither was guile found in his mouth who when he was reviled reviled not again when he suffered he threatened not but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously not stop right there so well, how dare anybody expect me to suffer wrongfully for something why should I take the blame for someone else's crime or wrongdoing why should I catch heat because of something that someone else has done, because Christ did. Now picture it, if you will, right? Let's go all the way back to Christ, to the incarnation and, and Jesus's ministry. And when he was reviled, really, let's take it all the way up to the end, okay, where he was taken and he was hauled up before Pontius Pilate. I think he went before Herod or who was it? That went before, before Pontius Pilate, but, you know, he was in at least two different kangaroo courts, before he was taken and then beaten and then nailed to a cross for our sins. Now, how did Christ react? He was accused. He was accused of blasphemy. He was accused of of, of leading people into error and into sin and all of these different things. Now, did he react by whipping out a sword and cutting his accusers down? Did he... Did he? Break out his AR-15 and just start mowing him down. Mass shooting time. You're not, you know, and act like some people do when they are put upon for so many years or whatever and they just, they don't think they can handle it anymore and they snap and they take 20 people with them into eternity. He didn't react like that. He didn't even stand up and say, hey, you guys have got it wrong. I'm not what you I'm not what you're accusing me of being. I am the son of God. Haven't you paid attention to to all the miracles and everything from the last 3 years and the stuff that I've been teaching out of the law, I confounded the doctors of the law when I was 12 and he didn't even stand up and defend himself. He didn't even utter a word in his defense, did he? He spoke a few ambiguous things to people like Pontius when he said Thou sayest, and my kingdom is not of this world. He didn't in any way present himself as a threat. But in fulfillment of prophecy, he, like a sheep, was dumb before his shearers, meaning he was mute. He didn't say anything because of what needed to come to pass. This became an example on our behalf. So let's actually go back into the previous paragraph, finish reading it, go down through the next, and then let's get to, to, to chapter three. Because it all ties together. So he says it's thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief. That's verse 19. Suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if you be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. There's no glory in that. It's just you get you got it coming to you. If you did wrong and you get punished for it, if you if you do 90 in a 35 zone and they take you and block you up for a night, or whatever. You, know, you, you get ticketed for that, cited for that, do jail time for that. Well, there's no glory in that. You had it coming because of what you did, right? That's any of us. If we go do something wrong and we get punished for it, there's no glory in that. We had it coming to us. But, he says, but if, this is in the back half of verse 20, but if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. no, We don't get to pick and choose the scripture that we like, do we? It'd be nice, maybe. But we don't have that. We don't have that right or that privilege or whatever you want to describe it. For Christians, we have to take all of it. Take all of it rightly and be willing to let it shape our lives. So you suffer wrong. If you suffer, if ye, when you do well, suffer wrong for it that's what he says is acceptable to God and you've heard that old saying and I think we said this three weeks ago when we were in this you know no good deed goes unpunished you've heard that saying before when someone tries to do something right and do well by somebody else and it blows up in their face and they end up catching heat and you feel like man well why did I even try to bother doing right right well he says that it's acceptable with God if we in our patience Bite back and hold back that that natural reaction of indignation and I'm gonna set you straight type of thinking. It's not to say you can never defend yourself. There's a right way to do that. But when the chips are down and there's just nothing to do but take it take it wrongly, God knows, and God is a just judge, and there's a blessing in it. There's a blessing in it. And one of the blessings that's in it, it's not even for you, it's for the person that's wrongly accusing you. A lot of times they'll see the patience and the humility with which you take injustice and it will speak to them and it'll speak very loudly. Why else have you heard that it is the blood of martyrs that is seed? You go back to the early history of the early church and look at some of the things that Christians endured and endured wrongfully. It caused, caused, let's say, the growth of the church as far as outward numbers, it caused those numbers to explode because people saw there's a reality behind this. People are dying for this, and willingly so. Fox's Book of Martyrs, I recommend it. It'll open your eyes. Okay, let's move on. Verse 21, he says For hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And sometimes that's the only option we have in life when we're facing something that we shouldn't have to. We just have to commit ourselves to him who judges righteously. Father, you know the details and you know the situation, you know what's right and wrong, and I'm just gonna trust you with my soul in this matter that you'll bring this out for Mike, that you'll bring out good from this. Who, verse 24, still speaking of Jesus, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your soul. So because Jesus was willing to endure wrongfully on our behalf, we ought to be willing to endure wrongfully if for conscience sake we be required to, right? Now, chapter three, likewise, that's why we reviewed the last two paragraphs because he says likewise here, means it's related to what we were just teaching. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with Fear or respect and honor. Okay, now, what did we just say about we don't get to cherry pick? So This is one of those chapters that some churches avoid like the plague because they don't want to incur the wrath or the indignation of the wives. But as we were 2,000 years ago, the human race is still fundamentally unchanged. We've got better technology, but we have to take it all. Can't cherry pick. We can't be selective, but we have to also rightly divide and understand what he's telling us. So, what does he say here? Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. That if any obey not the word, meaning you've got a believing wife who's married to an unbelieving husband, and that's actually very common. That happens a lot, and for different reasons. I know the Bible says not to be unequally yoked, but what happens a lot of times is you have two unbelievers that are married and then one of them becomes a believer at some point later on in life and the other one is, for whatever reason, lagging or just refusing. So in that situation, he's talking about here, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also, without the word, be one, by the conversation of the wives. And we know that conversation means manner of life, not just the talk of our mouths. So he speaks of being one to the faith by the conversation, the manner of life of the wives, while they, the unbelieving husband, behold your chaste, that means pure, conversation, your pure manner of life, coupled with fear. And in King James English, we read fear, usually that refers to respect. Honor, etc. So he's not telling wives to be terrified of their husbands. That is not the will of God, unless he's a terrifying person and he just needs to get saved. Okay? But he is telling us that a believing wife ought to be in subjection to her husband, whether her husband is a believer or not. This is not chauvinism, this is not sexism. This is not anti-feminism, although it is kind of anti-feminist if you look at the modern iteration of feminism. It's the way that God established the relationships between husbands and wives. There is a hierarchy there. It's a patriarchy, and I'm fighting it. Okay, well, fight it, and let's see what happens to your marriage, you know? But when we accept the biblical model of how our marriages are supposed to be, generally, because there's always exceptions, generally, our marriages will work a lot better. Now, sometimes you just have an unwinnable situation. You've got a man who's an incorrigible and a violent drunk. You can't work much with that. But that doesn't mean that you rebel against the person and destroy the testimony of your Christianity, you know, just to, well, but then, okay, well, what do I do? Does that mean that I should stay with an abusive man and just take it because I'm supposed to be in subjection to my husband? Well, let me put it like this. There's no way I'd live with somebody who punched me around. So the Bible does allow for separation, okay, in such untenable circumstances. you know. But many dysfunctional marriages, I would say even most dysfunctional marriages, aren't so dysfunctional that there's violence involved. So take all of this in stride. And if you have any questions about it, we have the question bucket in the back. or Just come to me, okay? Bring the questions to me. We'll handle it. We may even open it up for questions because I know we're dealing with volatile stuff here in some people's minds. It really it's touchy stuff. So I don't, to, I don't want to take the whole Bible study to deal with it exhaustively. Neither do I want it to deal with it insufficiently. So if you've got a question afterwards, bring it to me or we'll even open it up for questions afterwards. So he says, wives, be in subjection to your husbands. Okay, well, are there hard limits to that? See, this always comes up. What if my husband tells me to go rob a bank? well we already covered in the beginning of the previous chapter to be subject unto the authorities right so as christians we're also expected to be rightly expected to be subject to the laws of the land we're not lawless just because we're under grace and 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 are clean free or or not free from it depends on how you look at it but we are if you use paul's language you know just because we're under grace and not under the law of moses doesn't mean that we are above all the laws of men We still have to obey the laws in our country. And if you don't believe me, try it. See what happens. Go knock over DTs. Go hit the liquor store and see how much cash you can get out of the till. And see if the cops don't do something about it. And then when you say, well, I'm a Christian. I can just do whatever I want. And then we'll come visit you in jail. (laughs) Won't be the first time I've gone down there to visit somebody. You know, and you'll understand. We need to have a good testimony before the world, don't we? Lawless people never have a good testimony. So he says to be in subjection to a woman, for a wife to be in subjection to her husband. And one of the effects of being in subjection to her husband is if her husband is an unbeliever, he he can be and has often been won over to the faith of Jesus Christ by beholding his wife's humility, obedience and subjection and respect. Really respect. Where did that go in the last 60 years? What in the world happened to to our understanding and our perception of marriage in the last few decades? So, well, feminism, yeah, yeah, I know, we could blame it all on feminism, but I don't think you can blame all of it on feminism. I think there are a lot of other things that are at fault there too. Not just one particular poisonous ideology that really gained steam in the late 60s and then more steam in the 90s. And Are we in third or fourth wave feminism now? I've lost track, there's so many, you know? And all in opposition to how, believe it or not, how most people naturally sort themselves out in their relationships anyway. Look at most cultures across the world, even ones that have never been touched by the gospel. And in most cases, you will find a certain hierarchy within families. The husband leads, is hopefully not a tyrant in his leading, but the husband leads in wisdom and in love and in compassion and so forth. And a wife follows and is subject to her husband. And her wife leads the children because someone's got to raise them. And yes, the father has a hand in that also. He shouldn't be completely hands off. It should all be bound up together in love. And then there's harmony. You find that in nearly every culture, every culture on earth. And it's just an echo of the law of God that was placed in our hearts in the very beginning. And so as Christians that have been born again, we're supposed to be new creatures in Christ. How much more should we fashion our relationships after the biblical model, knowing that nature inclines us towards that anyway, and and that God would have us to do likewise. So... We'll just leave it at that. Now let's move on, because it gets even deeper here. If this is your first Bible study, you picked the doozy to come to, but we welcome you all the same, okay? So he says, verse two, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating of the hair, plating the hair, and of wearing of gold, or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, In that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Let's stop right there. Because, oh man, if ever I have put a target around my own neck for somebody to pull a trigger, it's tonight. There's a lot of women don't like this. There's a lot of men don't like this. I don't know why, but whatever. There's a lot of people that don't like this. But here it is. So, we're all adults. Let's just handle this like adults, shall we? All right. Let's go back to verse 3. Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair, wearing of gold, putting on of apparel. Let's stop right there. What is he saying here? He's talking about godliness and holiness, even in the way we look. And now this is where I would say the majority, I won't say the overwhelming majority, but I'll say the, the, the majority of churches run screaming because they're terrified of talking about this. And even I, and I've been living in this way above 25 years, I'm always a little apprehensive when I know, uh-oh, this is what's on deck tonight. And this wasn't planned for tonight. We started First Peter weeks and weeks ago, okay? But here we are, and we're not going to be selective, and we're not going to be chicken, but we're going to teach it in love, okay? Okay who's adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of plating the hair. Now, what's plating the hair? Now, some people misunderstand us. They think that any kind of braiding of the hair is somehow wrong for a woman, okay? I will definitely say that it's wrong for a man, because if your hair is long enough to braid and you're a man, it's time for a haircut. (laughs) Because we're told in the Word that if a man have long hair, nature itself teaches us that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. Now, a preacher starts talking about this, or a Christian starts talking about this, and instantly we get smacked with the legalist sticker. You're a legalist. It's like, no, I'm a legalist if I'm counting on this to make me saved. But if I, being saved by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ, if I seek to fashion my life according to the word of God, that doesn't make me a legalist. That makes me obedient, doesn't it? That's obedience to the word. And because certainly we obey the commandment that says thou shalt do no murder. Well, then why wouldn't we obey these Seemingly lesser commandments, and are they even really lesser, or are they just different? Why would we not obey these as well? So, what plating of the hair is, and this was a very common practice in ancient days, we've seen a little bit of a, of a revival in it in the last decade or so, but it's never really caught back on in the mainstream, probably because it's just too much work. But plating of the hair refers to when women would, they would not just braid their hair, but they would braid things into their hair, like strands of gold and, or silver of other precious metals or, or things like that. They would, they would braid and adorn even their hair. And so why would would women do that? Well, nature teaches us, and this is not wrong, okay, because the Bible even backs us up. Nature teaches us that a woman's hair is actually two things to her. One, it is her glory. Two, it is her covering. Okay? They are both of those things. So let me ask you a question if you're a woman. Um, and if you're a man, you're also allowed to think on these things, okay? This isn't s- just super secret and reserved, right? If you're a woman and your hair is your covering, why would you want to compromise it? And two, if you're a woman and your hair is your glory, why would you want to diminish it? And if your hair itself is your glory, what are you, you going to enhance by adding to it? It's like taking Christmas lights and stringing them out along a beautiful scene of nature or something. This is already beautiful. Now you've strung it with a bunch of Christmas lights and gaudy tinsel in the hopes of making it more beautiful. Now this isn't a a perfect analogy. It might even be a poor analogy. But can you see kind of what we're talking about? Peter, the apostle, says concerning wives, and you can apply it to women in general, not just wives, but he does say concerning wives specifically, whose adorning let it not be, that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold and of putting on of apparel. Now, we've got to handle this carefully because you can run to the other extreme. So, well, he said not to put on apparel, so I'm just going to be a nudist. Please don't. We know better. That That's never modest, right? Christians clothe themselves, don't we? Can I get an amen on that? <laughs> we believe in wearing clothes and we believe in wearing clothes that cover, right? And not being immodest. We're not trying to show off our bodies. We got out of that kind of thinking when we got out of sin, when we became believers and were made into new creatures. And we realize, hey, wait a second, everything I do has an impact on other people. It has an impact on my brothers and sisters in Christ. Thus, love your neighbor demonstrated really shows us that we ought to be mindful of that sort of thing. And as men, you know, we don't go walking around in ripped muscle shirts and all that trying to show off our pecs and our muscles and all that. Or, you know, if you even have that, and I don't, I don't know if any of us here really do, and I'm not asking to see. But whether, you, you know, whether you've got a grand Greek God physique, physique or not, you know, we don't want to be showing that off because either one, we don't want to, one, to cause anybody to stumble by way of lust. And two, we don't want it to make anybody sick. <laughs> and you know what I'm talking about you've driven down the road and seen some some beached whale jogging down the road with his shirt off and, and not just letting all that flab jiggle all around the place it's like please don't do that to people have some consideration well, certainly as Christians we ought to do the same thing for the sake of modesty and for the sake of love have mercy on people it's like well well, I can, just wear, I can wear whatever I want because I don't consider myself an attractive woman so it's not really going to tempt anyone still please. And you'd be surprised. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. I I ride that horse a lot. I really do, because it is so true. And it applies to every single one of us very deeply. If you'll take it seriously and apply it to our life. So again, let it not be the outward adorning of the plating of the hair and of wearing of gold. Now this raises a question. So is it a sin to wear any kind of gold or jewelry? Well, no, it's not a sin. I've got a wedding ring on. This, this serves a functional purpose, though. It tells women that I am out of the marriage market because I am already committed. I'm committed to my wife. It shows that I'm married. I'm committed. I'm not interested in in another in, in anybody else as far as romantic hookups, rendezvous, or whatever. And I've got one wife, not four. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> likewise, husband, likewise, wives. One husband. One husband. You know, well, well, this happened, yeah, and, and my husband died. Does that mean I can never marry again? No, no, we're not talking about that. The Bible doesn't say married once. It says one husband. Every wife have her own husband, and every husband have her own wife. So we're not trying to say that if you've been married once and your spouse died or something like that, that that uh, if you marry again, that you're in, that you're somehow in the wrong. We're not talking about that. Okay. So wearing of gold is don't put your stock and your confidence in that. Okay. And as believers, we really ought to be looking to keep it toned down anyway, because modesty goes even so far as that. So we don't cover ourselves in gold chains. We're not trying to look like rappers or or just people that are in love with jewelry, okay? And I don't have 50 rings adorning all of my fingers and and, and gold chains hanging off me. So so like that was that line in that movie years ago, we saw a picture of this guy on a mantle on a fireplace and he was covered in gold chains. And he looked at that and said, how do you go to the bathroom with all this stuff on? We don't, we don't do that. We don't do that. We're believers now. Our confidence is in something completely different. Let the unbeliever and the vain and people like that, let them sink all of their, all of their resources into these things to try to make themselves feel validated and worth something and all of that. We, but And this isn't... This isn't boasting, this isn't pride, but we who have been changed by the grace of God, that have been born again by the Spirit of God and the blood of Christ, our confidence is now in Him who has redeemed us. Thus, we don't have to to rely on things such as this to make us feel like we're worth something or that we're beautiful, or that we're attractive or appealing to the opposite sex or something like that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be attractive to the opposite sex. If you're trying to be attractive to the same sex, there's a problem, and you need Jesus, and he'll fix that. Okay, But there's nothing wrong with wanting to be attractive or, or appealing. If you're a woman, you want to be attractive to men. That's how you were designed. Likewise, men, we want to be attractive to women, Okay, at least long enough to get one, you know, and be committed to that person for life. That's the plan. That's the design. But our confidence no longer has to be in such things to feel like we have worth or to feel like we have value. You already have value. Man, we hammered that home Sunday morning, didn't we? You are worth, you are more valuable than many sparrows. You've no idea. And the measure of your worth, as we said on Sunday, is is measured between two nail-pierced hands. That's how valuable you are. You don't need to cover yourselves in precious metals and cut stones or cut glass, if that's what your budget can handle. You don't need to, to adorn yourself with all of that stuff to feel like you're worth something. Men, be men. Your value is found in God. Women, be women. Your value is found in God. You don't have to do all of this to feel like you have value. Let's go on. Let it not be. So you're adorning. He says, let it not be the plating of the hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of apparel. And it's understood that there should be, that there could be an adjective in front of the word apparel there. It's understood costly apparel. Luxuriant, flamboyant apparel. Obviously, we're all wearing apparel, or we'd be nudists. So you know that he doesn't mean that we shouldn't be wearing clothes. But don't let that be where you find your worth. Okay? So is expensive clothing wrong? No. But don't let that be where you find your worth. Why not just be simple? Why not just be... I won't say plain because that carries a certain connotation, although that is virtuous, okay? Why not just, if you're a man, dress like a man? This isn't legalism tonight. Likewise, okay, if you're a woman, be a woman. Men were made to be masculine, right? Women were made to be feminine. Please do be feminine if you're a woman. Likewise, men. Oh, I was taught to be in touch with the most sensitive side. Okay, but that doesn't mean that you become feminine, right? You can be compassionate to women, you can be compassionate, you can be sympathetic, you can you can uh being a man doesn't mean that all you do is strap on a tool belt and go wreck things and build things all day long, and you can care less about, you know, the nicer things or the more delicate things in life. Doesn't mean that at all. Okay. But see understand you understand by nature the distinction that we're making. God has made a separation between men and women. I don't mean a separation in distance; I mean a separation in time. And isn't it best that way? Do you want some soft milk sock dude that you know likes to wear lace? <laughs> <laughs> if we're here. If we're going here. We may as well lay it on thick, okay? <laughs> you know, you know, and. Uh, well, it's nothing wrong if he likes flowers, but, you know, if all of his clothes get flower prints on them, you know. And we really, really opened up a can tonight, didn't we? All right, well, let's clean it up then. Let's clean it up together, you know. Likewise, either of you brothers, do you want a woman who's all rough and tough and picking up engine blocks and throwing them across the yard, you know? And it doesn't mean that, you know, she's. it doesn't mean that if she can work, she's not feminine So it doesn't mean that work, being able to work into labor is somehow unfeminine. But you understand what we're saying. You want a woman who's rough and tough and acts like a man, talks like a man, and all of that? Probably not. You know, that's not to say that you're looking for some exaggerated extreme and the opposite either. But certainly you would want a woman who is feminine, you know. Verse 3. Who's adorning, let it not be the outward adorning, plating of the hair, the wearing of gold, and putting on of apparel, because that can easily distort into vanity, okay, all right? But let it be, here's what he says in verse four, let it be the hidden man of the heart. All right, so he's he's admonished us, you know, the direction not to go in, and now he tells us the direction that we ought to go in. Doesn't just forbid the one and not reveal the other, okay? So he says, let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Guess what, sisters? Guess what? Your meek and quiet spirit, if you have such, or if you're developing such, or if you want to have such, is more attractive to a man and is more pleasing to God than your six thousand dollar four carat diamond ring that weighs two pounds and causes you to walk sideways—it is—it is a more beautiful adornment. Let me just open up a little bit into ma- let me just open up a little bit of male psychology too. Okay, want to know what attracts a man? It isn't a loud, brassy, obnoxious, unfeminine, hostile, combative. Spirit, no matter how good-looking the clothes are or what the measurements of the figure are. Now, I'm not saying that none of them. I'm not saying that looks are not important to a man. Unfortunately, the way that we're made is that's the first thing that a man notices in a woman is her physical appearance. Okay, that being said, though, doesn't mean that he's looking for someone or is wanting someone that's showing off everything, especially if he's a brother in Christ. He's not looking for them because that communicates all the wrong things to him. That communicates a decided lack of Christian virtue in that person, okay? A meek and a quiet spirit. is an unbelievably powerful and beautiful ornament in the character of a woman. A meek and a quiet spirit. doesn't mean a mute spirit. doesn't mean you can't talk unless you're spoken to. She can't teach this stuff without running to both extremes to debunk both extremes and bring it back to the moderation of the middle. You understand what we mean by that, okay? It's not about oppressing women. It's not about that at all. It was never about that. Maybe in the minds of some unsaved men, perhaps, but not so in the minds of saved men. A meek and a quiet spirit. A woman who is discreet who is feminine. See where we're going with this? or Where the the apostles coming from with this? So, well, that's just not me. I don't have that kind of a personality. You know, that's just not me. Oh, all right, well, can be. Now, I understand human beings aren't infinitely malleable, but we can fit into the mold that God ordained if we desire to, because God will help us says, let it be the hidden man of the heart. That's what's most important. That's where beauty really is. That's where beauty, the the beauty that actually counts and that endures over time. That's where where it is. Because your physical beauty, what we all know in time, that's going to fade. And that's men and women. Every single one of us is going to get old and ugly. Amen. And there's just no dodging that bullet unless you die young and make a beautiful corpse. But then who wants a corpse? There you go. Verse 5, For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. So Peter right here, and he's not the only one who talks about this in the New Testament, and this isn't the only place that it occurs in the New Testament, but Peter's given us a very nice template for wives to be appealing to and remain appealing to their husbands. My husband ought to be concerned about remaining appealing to me. Yes, he actually ought to. It's not a one-sided teaching, although Peter does only sort of deal with the wife's side in this paragraph. Paul and other apostles deal with husbands and other, or at least Paul does, in other places in scripture too. So it's not all one sided. When we teach this, we're not picking on women. But here it is. You want to know what men like? He likes a wife that'll listen to him. He likes a meek and a quiet spirit. Not someone who busts his chops the moment he comes home from working all day long with, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you get this done? Why did why?
0: Blah, 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 blah. You know what I'm saying?
1: And I'm I'm trying to use some levity with this because it it can be a touchy subject to deal with. You want to know what men like? 1 Peter chapter 3, first paragraph, verses 1 through 6. And he says that the result of that, this type of character, is in the sight of God of great price. It is of great price. It is more valuable than you would believe. it's worth more than that piece of jewelry you got, okay? He says that the holy women in old times, they adorned themselves like this. They adorned themselves in obedience to their husband. They had ordained. They adorned themselves in a meek and a quiet spirit. They adorned themselves in being in subjection. Verse six, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, no, I'm not saying you have to call your husband Lord. That's a bit over the top in our culture. Uh, there, there have been lots of men that have joked about that, but... I don't think I'd pull that on my wife, but she does respect me and she does. She she keeps herself in subjection to me. And I know it's not always easy. Sometimes it's very hard, especially if your husband is a bonehead, he needs to learn how to not be a bonehead and then he'll have greater credibility. And do you see how that, how, how that works? When both of you better yourselves, not each other, but you better yourselves then you end up bettering each other and you both end up being better in the eyes of God anyway. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord, it's a demonstration of respect, whose daughters ye are, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. There we have it. Now next week begins in verse seven, likewise ye husbands. So see that, Peter isn't just picking on women. He's gonna deal with the husbands too. Likewise ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge giving honor to the wife giving honor to the wife all right doesn't mean that she's your queen but it means you're not treating her like a slave
0: thank you for listening to come to the table bible studies from the new testament christian church of cheyenne included in these presentations are red letter studies on the life and teachings of our lord jesus christ historical studies on the old testament topical studies on biblical doctrines and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne giving.